Amen, amen. Well, Merry Christmas. I'm so glad you're here this morning. My name is Kenneth Bruce. I'm the senior pastor here at Westwood, and I am so glad you are here this morning. This, uh, this month, we're going through a sermon series entitled Vintage Christmas. And one of the components of this Vintage Christmas series is we're having some opportunities to hear from some staff members who are more of the vintage type. Okay, so Topper Reed, could you come on up here, my friend? <laughs> Y'all give it up for Topper Reed. I love it. Topper is our pastor of small groups, and if you get a chance to know Topper, Topper is winsome. He has a tremendous sense of humor, and he has been in ministry for 38 years, okay? Now, Topper, that's longer than I've been alive, man. That's ancient. That's a, yeah, yeah, that's a long time. So, okay, we'll start with this. How did you get the name Topper? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> is it on to push that thing up? Okay, can you hear me now? There you go. Okay. Good. Uh, it's actually kind of cheesy, and I'm very hesitant in sharing this private information with you, but since you asked me in front of all these people. Um, <laughs> Just two of us. Actually, my sister is four years and one day older than I am, and when she was born, they told my parents that they wouldn't be able to have any more children. It was just impossible. Well, three, three years later, I came along, and everything went fine through the pregnancy, and I was born. And uh, they kind of predicted it would be another girl, and my dad really wanted a boy. And so when I came out, a boy, and everything was fine, my grandmother said, that tops everything. And they gave me the nickname Topper. Oh, and wow. so it just kind of stuck with me. And so I'm a junior. And so to differentiate between my dad and me, they call me Topper and my dad his name. So anyway, that's oh, how Oh, that is so great. I love that story. That's so good. Yeah. That is so cool. Um, share with us, what is your oldest Christmas memory? My oldest Christmas memory is not necessarily my happiest Christmas memory, but it's one that stuck in my mind. When I was five years old, we had gone to my grandmother's house up in Coleman for our Christmas dinner with our family, and we were leaving and heading back home, and we're going down the little dirt road there, and there was a big, big house that sat up there next to the road, and it had a huge picture window on the side of it, and I guess inside of that window was a big den and so while we were driving down the road Santa Claus was busy putting all the stuff out under the tree and so my dad made the comment oh my goodness it's getting late I'm not sure we're going to make it home in time because if we don't get home in time Santa Claus will not stop at our house and so I worried all the way home from that night that we wouldn't make it home but we did and so that's that's a memory I have it's not a great memory but that's, my, that's, <laughs> that's when look. I was about five years old yeah and that's about the time Santa just came on the scene so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, I love you so much. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, share with us, what is your, what's your favorite Christmas memory? I guess my favorite Christmas memory is when I was about 12. We had all of our family come into our house one Christmas, and it was a, it was a, it was a cold Christmas. It was kind of gloomy but very Christmassy outside, and the family came in on Christmas Eve, and we were just wall-to-wall family, and they spent the night, and, and so we had all the kids on pallets and stuff all over the house, and it was just a lot of excitement, a lot of food, and presents all under the trees, and the next morning, uh, we had to stay asleep until 6 a.m. My grandmother was kind of watching over us, and so at 6 a.m., we could come out and, and see what Santa put under the tree, and then later on, we opened all of the gifts, and we had a big family brunch, and it was just really special. Those are sweet Very special. Those are so good. That is so good. Church family, if you ever get a chance to spend time with this guy, it is a delight. He's wise, loves the Lord, loves his wife, Diane, has eight grandchildren. Is that right? And uh, just a blessed man. Can we praise the Lord for Topper Reed? Amen. I love you, my friend. Thankful for you. Thanks, bro. I love it. 
So thankful. And church family, let's, let's make sure we don't take for granted the team and the leadership that God has, has brought here. Uh, some very, very special men who, who love the Lord and who love our church. You know, I, th- I think it's amazing how the human heart longs for justice. I remember as a kid watching Robin Hood and being frustrated with evil King John. A king who took advantage of people. He stole from the poor to become even more wealthy. But there was this expectation throughout this movie in which you expected the true king, King Richard, to return. And when he would show up, he would make all things right. Well, that's what's happening in Micah's day. The rich are stealing from the poor. And like robber barons in the south, they are taking land from the poor in order to fatten their pockets. And so the prophet Micah is pronouncing judgment on the people of God. Not only were the rich taking advantage of the poor, but the people were in continuous disobedience to the Lord's commands. They did not trust him. They did not love him. And so the Lord said, judgment is coming. But as, as God promised and pronounced judgment, he simultaneously promised that one day he was going to send a ruler. He was going to send a king who would come and he would make things right. That is the point of Micah chapter 5. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the table of contents. Okay, I want just to kind of make sure you guys can get familiar. Some of you are thinking, Micah, I have no idea where Micah is in the Bible. So one of the great tools that you have in your lap is the table of contents. In the front of your Bible, this is a great way to get familiar with where the scriptures are. The Old Testament concludes with 12 minor prophets. Now, they're not minor in significance, but they're minor in, in length. So they're, they're shorter prophets that are giving these declarations from the Lord. And so I want you to look for the word Micah and go ahead and turn to that page number in your Bible. And as you're turning there, it's important to know that Micah's preaching ministry took place around 700 B.C. And like many of the prophets, his preaching is very complex. It's difficult to translate and to interpret. Like, for example, in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, Micah prophesies, he predicts that an Israelite city would be under attack and its leader would be struck on the cheek. Well, this prophetic word came true in 2 Kings 25. In uh, the year 586, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonians. King Zedekiah, he tries to make a break for it with his troops, but they, uh, they have their plans thwarted by the Babylonians who capture them, and then they humiliate the king, Micah 5.1, by striking him on the face with a rod. Now remember, Micah is prophesying that 120 years before it even happened. You see, being struck on the face was a sign of humiliation and defeat. And back then, if your king was humiliated, you were humiliated. And so in Micah 5, God contrasts the shame and the wicked king in verse 1 with another king, verse 2 and following, this king that's coming. Read with me in Micah chapter 5, beginning with verse 2. Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, and in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. Christmas is that time of year in which we mark the significance of an historical event. When God became like one of us. When the king became like a peasant. So that the peasants could become like the king. And that is what Christmas is all about. It is a celebration of the birth of our king. Therefore, this Christmas, I want to encourage you to do this. Behold, number one, the king's birth place. Look at verse two. Bethlehem Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Here in verse 2, Micah gives a word of hope in the midst of discouraging news. As God's people had been walking in disobedience and they were about to suffer the consequences of their choices, God does not leave them without hope. He promises a coming ruler, a coming king who would, be, who would come from, verse 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That word Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephrathah means fruitful. So as not to confuse the reader with another Bethlehem in Israel, God gives here both names for the sake of precision. He's wanting to give a very specific place from where this ruler would come from. It was game three of the 1932 World Series. Yankees versus Cubs. Babe Ruth is up to bat. And before the pitch comes, he points over the outfield wall. He calls his shot. As the pitch comes, wham, right over the wall. Well, right here in verse 2, God is calling his shot 700 years before it happens. God is saying, I'm going to bring a ruler, and he is going to come, and from you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, this little town five miles south of Jerusalem, this suburb of the, of the city of Jerusalem, from you, you small little town, I want you to know something significant is going to come forth from you. We see here in the text where God is saying, listen, though you are small in size, you are rich in history. Now, this is the town near where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, died. This is the town where Ruth and Naomi traveled to live, as we're going to see next week. And this is the town where David was anointed king uh, over Israel by the prophet Samuel. This poor suburb of Jerusalem was small among the clans of Judah. But the Lord says, there will come from Bethlehem one who will rule over Israel for me. Well, we fast forward to the New Testament to Luke chapter 2. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. 
Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, watch this, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Matthew chapter 2 echoes this sentiment in regards to Micah 5 of Jesus. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew and Luke are drawing lines from the birth of Jesus Christ to Micah chapter 5. Now this is huge, knowing the exact place where King Jesus would be born. Jesus, the Son of God, was born not in a prominent city, not in a wealthy city like Jerusalem or Alexandria or Athens or Rome. No, he was born in a poor little town called Bethlehem. Isn't it interesting that God used a pagan Roman emperor to inadvertently orchestrate Mary and Joseph's arrival in Bethlehem? Listen, this is not an accident. This is by sovereign providence. God orchestrated Mary and Joseph to come to Bethlehem for such a time for the birth of Jesus so that he might be the fulfillment of what Micah said would happen in Micah chapter 5, 700 years earlier. And God had a purpose in sending Mary and Joseph to this little town, and it's this. Bethlehem was God's launching pad to take back what was stolen in Eden. When sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, God already had a plan. And he wanted to rescue mankind and bring us back into a right relationship with himself. And so we see throughout the Old Testament, he makes promise after promise. He says, listen, I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a king. I'm going to send a Messiah. And through him, you can come back to me. I'm going I'm to fix what happens in Genesis 3 through my son. And so in God's pursuit of bringing you and I back into a right relationship with himself, he does so through his son, Jesus. He is the king. He is the ruler over Israel who came from Bethlehem. But also this Christmas, behold, number two, the king's vintage pedigree. Look at verse two. Scripture says his origin is from antiquity. From ancient times. The ruler over Israel, Micah declares, is from ancient times. He's, he's from, his origin is from antiquity. This is coming king is quite literally from eternity past. Christy and I have found our dinner table to be one of the best places for discipleship for our children. 
And it's there that we have gospel conversations, we share the gospel, we read Bible stories, because that's the only time we can get them to sit still for a few minutes. And so as we're sitting around the table, sometimes they'll ask us questions. And so a few months ago, one of my sons said, Dad, where did God come from? And the table got silent as in, oh, we just stumped Dad. We got him, right? Well, Christy just gave four words. He has always existed. And you can kind of see discouragement. They were like, oh. I'm like, that's right, boys. That's my wife right there. Which, <laughs> but she, she's exactly right. Like, God has always existed. God is eternal. He has no beginning, and he has no end. He's always existed. Moses said it like this in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, you, or, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is from eternity to eternity. The Baptist faith and message 2000 declares that the eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct attributes without division of nature, essence, or being. You see, this baby born in Bethlehem is no ordinary child. He is the king whose pedigree goes back from before time began. He is the king whose origin is from ancient times. Jesus self-described this theological truth when a group of religious leaders start questioning him. In John chapter 8, they're questioning if he's even sane. They're calling him insane. They begin questioning his authority. And so he says in John chapter 8, verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. This statement so enraged these religious leaders that they started gathering stones in order to kill Jesus. Why? Because he was declaring himself as the eternal God. Long before Abraham raised his eyes up to the sky and began counting stars that would, that would prove to be how multiple his offspring would be. Before that day even happened, Jesus says, I am. I was already there. I am the eternal God who has always existed. Jesus here, we see him in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, is that he is the one whose pedigree is from of old. Long before Abraham looked up, God the Son was already in existence. Don't miss this. Jesus is the king whose pedigree goes back long before time began. This baby born in Bethlehem is the one who was, and the one who is, and the one who is to come. He is, Hebrews 13, 8, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is Jesus. He is the King, and He is our King, and He has come for us. But I also want you to see number three. This Christmas, behold the King's arrival plan. Look at verse three. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. Now verse 3, y'all, this is a challenging verse. There are different perspectives of what Micah is, is referencing in regards to the coming Messiah. There is a sense in which Micah seems to be referencing a national birth. This birth will take place at the end of time when the king comes and the, the Jews who have been abandoned will, will return to the king. 
Like Micah here is, is pointing to a coming day when Jews think Romans 11 will believe upon this ruler, upon this Messiah, and they will indeed return to him. And yet there is also a sense in which Micah seems to be referring, uh, referring to the king's actual physical birth taking place in Bethlehem. Now at times, when we read prophets like Micah, we'll be reading with the questions, are you talking about a few years from now? Are you talking about hundreds of years from now? Or are you talking about the end of time? Well, sometimes the answer is yes. I think that's what's happening here in verse 3. Micah does seem to be pointing forward to the end of time when, when Jews believe upon King Jesus and they return to him. And yet he's also pointing forward to the king's first coming, to the little baby born in Bethlehem. But what we do see here is that God has a plan. And Micah is giving hope to Israel through a birth announcement. He's saying, listen, the king is coming. And when he does, he's going to unite Israel. He's going to bring all together. He's going to be like the leader of a great big happy family reunion. This coming king will be the means through which all of God's people will come together. And that is God's plan. As he's going to gather from the four corners of the earth all those who believe and trust in him. And it's all because of what happened in Bethlehem. I want you to see fourth and finally, this Christmas, behold, I want you to behold the king's greater purpose. Look at verse four. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. This king who's coming, he has a purpose. This shepherd king born in Bethlehem, he came for the purpose of leading his people back to himself. He will stand and he will shepherd his people. But with what power? Verse 4, in the strength of the Lord. Under whose authority? Verse 4, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. And as your good shepherd, the purpose, the reason that King Jesus came was to lead you to himself. So Kenneth, what does this mean? Like practically, what does this look like? Well, here's what it means. It means, number one, no matter what you face, Jesus goes before you. He goes before you. Verse four, he will stand and shepherd them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you the Lord says. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm going to watch over you. Like a king taking his throne as a rightful ruler, Jesus stands to, to lead you and to go before you. I had the privilege of overseeing a, a wedding last night. It was a beautiful wedding between a, a bride and a groom. In the midst of this wedding, I challenge the bride and the groom about God's call and God's will for their lives. I told this young man, I said, listen, God's will for you is to love your wife, to lead her, to provide for her, to protect her. You are to shepherd your home. 
in many ways, I am pointing him to Jesus and how as God has called husbands to lead and provide and to protect their wives and their children, so we see Jesus do that for us. Not only for Israel, but for his church. But for us who are in Christ, he leads us, he provides for us, he protects us, and he goes before us. You have a shepherd, you have a savior, you have a king who loves you and wins you with his love. And that is the beauty of the gospel of what God has done for us, that no matter what you face, Jesus goes before you. But secondly, I want you to see that Jesus stands beside you. Verse 4, they will live securely. The Lord promises his protection for his sheep. Any wolf that seeks to hurt one of his sheep will receive a shepherd's crook to his teeth. The Lord does not take kindly those who seek to do harm to his children. And what we see in the scriptures is a God who is a defender of the weak. He's a defender of the poor. He's a defender of the needy. Well, don't look now. That's who you and I are. Outside of Christ, we are weak. We are poor. We are needy. We need a king. We need a savior. And so God sends forth his son. And in him, he stands beside us. He goes before us. He loves us and says, I will be with you. Have you ever found yourself in a dangerous situation with your kids? Maybe you were around a, a bunch of people that just looked kind of shady and you weren't sure if this was a safe situation. Or maybe you were in an unfamiliar environment and you were like, something's off here. Did you let your kids get too far ahead of you? Or did you bring them close? Well, what we see in the scriptures is that God brings us close. I will be your defender. I will be your shepherd. I will be one who will stand before you. I will stand beside you. And I will go before you. God loves to protect his children, to show himself faithful as all-sufficient and as the defender of his children. No matter what you face right now, you have a Savior who stands beside you. He's with you. He goes before you. And no matter what you face, he says, I will be your shepherd. That's the beauty. And y'all, there is coming a day when there is a new kingdom and we will forever live securely, verse 4. There will be no more dangerous situations. There's no more dangerous people. There's no more dangerous places. We will be in the presence of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when you're in the presence of a lion, you do not fear those who come after you. That's what's coming in the new kingdom. Micah is saying, listen, Israel, lift up your eyes. Your king is coming, born in Bethlehem, and he's going to come and shepherd you. He's going to protect you. He's going to be with you until the very end. Well, I want to call upon you today. I want you to know you have a Savior who loves you, who was born in Bethlehem, who died at Calvary and rose again outside of Jerusalem. So those who turn away from their sin and trust in him are given eternal life. 
You are forgiven of your sin, offered adoption into the family, given an inheritance, and the Lord says, I do all of this for you. That's what this gospel does. And we see a savior, we see a king who not only goes before us, he stands beside us, but number three, I want you to see Jesus lives inside you. Verse five, he will be their peace. Isn't that amazing? God provides for us his peace, but he is our peace. In the midst of a world that is going crazy, the Lord affords and he provides internal peace. Those who rest in him, those who abide in him, those who trust in him. What are you facing today that you feel the anxiety? You feel the inner turmoil. You are worried and carrying so many cares. I want you to know the Lord says, I will be your peace. And how does he do that? By coming and taking up residence, living inside of us. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus comes and he abides, he lives inside of his children. That's what he provides for you. And Christmas is the inauguration. It is the beginning of Christ and what he came to do for us is that he lived the perfect sinless life that you and I couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved. And he rose again on the third day. So as we bank, as we trust, as we abide in him, Jesus comes and he lives inside of you. See, what we see here in the text is a shepherd genre. We see a shepherd form that God plays in the life of his people. This shepherd king born in Bethlehem came to earth to do one thing, to die on the cross for you. He came to die for you. He came to lay his life down for you. Jesus said it like this in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus came to do. Christmas is not the end. It's the beginning. And it's driving us forward to Easter, to where God's own son goes to the cross and he makes a way for you to be reconciled to God, with God, and by God. You see, that's what's so amazing. It's chapter 5, verse 5, he will be your peace. It's not just an inner peace that you have in the midst of trial, although he does provide that. But God provides an even greater peace. It is a peace with God. Outside of Christ, you and I, we were enemies of God. We were separated from him. We were unable to be reconciled back to him. But God has made a way so that Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God today is offering you peace. He's offering a way not only for inner peace, but peace with him. And it's found 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born on Christmas morn, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And he grew up and he came to do one thing, to seek and to save that which was lost. And he goes to the cross and he dies for you, for all of your sin, all of your shame, everything in your past, everything in your present, everything in your future, he took it all at the cross. And the good news of Christmas is not just that he was born, was that he died, but that he's still not dead. He rose again on the third day, so those who trust in him have eternal life. And it's yours for the taking. If you would humble yourself, turn away from your sin, and trust in Jesus. Because he, he is our king. And our king has come. And that is what Christmas is all about.